I was sure I was going to be an attorney, but this was a waning thought. I loved law school, made a lot of great friends, still my friends, still in touch with a lot of people. But I, I tried to be a normal person and have a career that people would admire, whatever. But I just knew I wasn't going to be able to do it. I just kept moving towards the art world. And so that just fell by the wayside. I mean, it landed in a ditch real quick. Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On today's episode, recorded in August of 2019, I speak with Linda St. John of D.L. Cerny. Here's what Betsy bober Pallavi, founder of Manhattan Sideways, had to say about Linda. Interviewing Linda St. John was an absolute joy. Ellie asked her one question and she was off and running. In addition to being incredibly talented, making all of the clothes that she sells in her charming boutique, Linda is also the author of a best-selling book, Even Dogs Go Home to Die. As one who delights in every aspect of New York, it pleased me to no end to hear Linda speak of her immediate love of our city. She arrived here in the 1980s with the intention of a short visit, but it did not take her long to realize that this is where she and her equally artistic husband should reside. They have remained true to the East Village all these years later and are as content today as they were when they first settled in. Linda always has a positive, infectious attitude towards life. Even during the pandemic, she is able to see the bright side. Although not as many customers are stopping by to socialize and shop on East 9th Street, Linda believes that they will be back. And in the meantime, she is happy to be able to occupy her time consumed with her creative passions. Hello. Hi, hello world. <laughs> Linda, if I could just please have you introduce yourself and tell me the name of your business, please. My name is Linda St. John. The name of my business is D.L. Cerny. Stands for Dwayne and Linda Cerny. And I'm married to Cerny. And what do you do here at D.L. Cerny? Well, I do everything I want to do. So I'm so blessed, I'm so thrilled, I'm so happy that I reopened my shop here two and a half years ago. Our first store was on 7th Street near 3rd Avenue. And we were there for 28 years, took a couple of years off and I'm back because I needed to have my store again. I do a lot of my personal work in here. I do a lot of my artistic creations in here, my skinny girls in a dirt yard. I write in here. So when I'm not busy with customers, this is my studio. Can you tell me about your personal journey to New York? The personal journey to New York was just incredible, fun and crazy. We came up in 84 to visit a friend who was living here. We were gonna be here for a week. We came up and um, we didn't leave. <laughs> we rented an apartment during that week. <laughs> and, you know, there you go. You come to New York, I know I'm not the only one, and it's like you're looking around and you're thinking, whoa, I gotta live here. So, we rented the apartment, 6th Street between B and C. It was a sublease. Cliff and Joan were heading to Mexico for a year. Cliff was going to paint porpoises with gold crowns on their heads. And uh, I regret not getting one of those paintings. Then the next two months were all about actually physically making the move up to New York City from East Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So packed the U-Haul, 26-foot-long U-Haul, packed with unworn vintage clothing, accessories, shoes, hats, boots, ties, the whole thing, 
drove it up here, unloaded it, and then we went looking for a store. And what happened is we were walking around the East Village, of course. Best place to be in the 80s. Damn, I want the 80s back. Give anything to have the 80s and the 90s back. So we were on 7th Street. I saw an elderly gentleman walk out of 13 East 7th Street. I said, sir, do you know who owns the building? I, I see there's a for rent sign there. He said, I own it. Uh, you can talk to my son about it. We talked to his son. We agreed on a price, shook hands, got the keys. Uh, yeah, I love old school. I love old time. Let's see, he took a chance on us, Freddie. Wonderful man. So we were up and running in October, and it was a time when all the musicians were coming to the city where there were venues where they could actually play music, and they all found us, and it was just terrific. It was so successful, and we were just thrilled, like kids, like, whoa, this isn't work. So we just never really looked back. And that was a great run we had there, but after 28 years, we retired. The building was being sold, and we didn't know what was coming because the horrors that were going on at that time, these huge, big real estate companies just coming in and buying whole blocks, throwing people in the street. We closed in 2013, mm -hmm. you know, and there were so many empty stores, people pushed out, leases not renewed, and we, we needed a break. So we moved up to the farm for a couple of years, and uh, I loved it, hands in the dirt, and it's beautiful up there, dogs running around. But I really missed my friends, I missed the city, and I missed my moments of solace in a, in a little studio of my own with the clothes everywhere. That's a good formula for me. So I did a pop-up across the street in the art gallery, Umbrella Arts. And that was when you came back from upstate, right? That's when I decided to come back. I said, let me test the waters and see what's happening. So it was really delightful and fun and wonderful. And everybody showed up in the opening. So we were off and running. And it was just wonderful. Oh, my God, you're back. <laughs> and I said, well, we're back for, we're back for two months. And they said, no, you got to come back. So we did the two months. And then the next summer, we did the two months. And that was when I really solidified in my mind, I got to have a store. Okay, here we are now. That was 2017. I started looking. Uh, oh my God, no, no handshakes. Yeah, the greed factor was over the top. You know, it's one of the deadly sins, greed. It just, it clouds everything. And I, I looked at a lot of places, found a few. I was very close to signing a lease somewhere else. And I got up one morning and I said, Susie, I'm so uncomfortable with, with these people. Susie's uh, your daughter? Yeah, Susie's my daughter. And uh, I said, I, I just didn't sleep, rolled around all night long. And I said, I'm gonna walk down 9th Street. So walked down 9th Street that morning before we were gonna sign the deal. And um, I saw a little sign in the window Little orange sign, for rent, 718 number. Whoa, I called. The guy answered, he remembered us, because his kids went to school. He saw our shop. They went to school at St. George Church there. So he said, well, my son will show it to you. So I met his son here. I walked in. I thought, oh, it's so small, but it's so cozy. And I said, you know, without really even going over particulars, I said, I'll take it. He handed me these keys just handed them to me and I took the keys and I <laughs> burst into tears. I, 
And he said, are you okay? And I said, I don't know. I, I think so, but man, you just handed me the keys. And he said, Dad wants you to have the place. He wants you to make a million dollars. And it really started the ball. And I said, please don't pay any attention to me. I'm fine. It's, it's just you don't know what I've been through. It's been a year. And I said, man, this is just too wonderful. I've got to let it soak in. And these are the actual keys. Wow. And now we're going into uh, our third year. And what's it been like being in this neighborhood? Fantastic. I didn't look anywhere else. What did you love about this neighborhood? What brought you here? Uh, what I love about the neighborhood is the hint that it's still, it still has of the 80s when there was so much creativity in the neighborhood. I remember uh, going down 7th Street, go, going down all the streets, really, so many little shops with people doing creative things, making jewelry, making hats, art galleries everywhere. It just had a wonderful energy. What's your relationship like with the businesses around you, the business owners around you? The gal next door who has Elliot Mann is a wonderful, delightful, talented designer. She's a dear friend of mine. Delany, who has the Curiosity Shop, she's been there 35 years. I think she started it when she was like a teenager. And treasure's everywhere in there. She's a really wonderful gal. So we kind of all work together. We make the street a destination because everybody on the street brings a little something different to the game. And this is a very fashion-heavy, vintage-heavy street. One thing we haven't talked about yet, actually, is the style of the clothing. Can you describe it to me? Oh, the style of the clothing. It's a very simple formula. Everything is mostly based on the 1930s through the 60s. Those decades, in my opinion, are the best for design. The best cars. You can go back to the 30s. That's when the dresses really started to become beautiful. You know, a little bit of shoulder pad, long, sweeping silk. Uh, I didn't like the 20s. The armholes are cut up to here, and then it's really big around here. All guys in 20s coats, jackets, sport coats, look, you know, kind of fat, even if they aren't, and uncomfortable. You get into the 30s and a little broader shoulder on a man's jacket, slimming in the waist. Love the 40s. 50s, of course, is just hot. And even until the late 60s, but we started losing quality because of... Uh, massive advertising campaigns that swindled people out of their belief that they have a right to quality and fit. Even poor people, until the late 60s, had quality in construction if they bought clothes and anything else, really. We didn't have a lot of cheap junk being made in America because we had tags on things made to last, made in America. So that's what we do, and the clothing, the designs are flattering, well-made, good fabrics. Nothing will end up in that floating island of clothes and bottles. So everything in here is cotton, linen, silk, a lot of vintage wool, just beautiful quality, beautiful hand to it. Rayon in the gabardine shirts, which is real wood pulp. Rayon's a wonderful fiber. And where do you get these materials? Well, it's difficult. We bought a lot of fabric in the 80s and 90s because, unfortunately, for the world, but fortunately for us, a lot of these old wholesale companies were closing, selling out their wares, and they had amazing wool from Britain, the Midlands of England, world-renowned for their wool-making skills. And so we bought it all. 
they wanted to get rid of it, they were closing down. Same with a lot of the buttons. In the fashion district uptown, always up, up in the top floors were button companies that had been started by somebody's grandfather. The grandkids were not interested, sold it all out. So we would go and um, buy all the buttons we could buy. I went to a fabric expo a few weeks ago and did see some companies. I think a lot of those buttons are being made abroad. They look nice, some of them. But the, the old button industry, we had a lot of it here on the Mississippi River. It was uh, divided up into different categories. You'd have the clammers. They would, they would hunt for the clams and the shells along the bank. And then somebody would haul the basket up to the um, factory with a mule. I went in an old button factory that was just closing down and trying to shift over to polyester buttons. This was in Iowa. And the, the man was uh, telling me how the buttons were made from the shells. It was fascinating because there was a job for everybody. There was someone who washed the shells. There was someone who carved the, the, the pearl, someone who drilled the holes. And it was an industry in America who was respected. And then he showed me how they were shifting to polyester buttons. And that was a heartbreaker because polyester is plastic. Now, when it's woven, when it's, the threads are pulled and it begins to impersonate cotton thread, it's just plastic string. And that stuff is woven as if it's thread, as if it's, you know, a fiber. It's just plastic. So the way they were making the buttons is they'd get big cubes of plastic polyester, melt it down, and it would be put into a tube. And then when it hardened, they just kind of saw it off into little discs, and they'd punch holes in it and polish it. Polyester buttons. So the guy at the button factory, he told me when they got rid of those old buttons, you know, that, that old junk, oh, boy. He said that they had um, everybody in the small town would come with their pickup truck or a trailer and drive under this chute. That's where the clams would come out. They'd be washed and come out of a chute. They were putting the buttons in there, and the locals were coming and getting a truckload and going home and paving their driveways. Heartbreaking to think of it. Wow. And there was a button that I found, just a few. There were little hearts carved, and they were red. They'd been treated with dye, and they were beautiful. And I said, where are these? And he somebody got a truckload of the red heart buttons and paved their driveway. And I, my heart sank to my knees. I said to my husband, Dwayne, we got to go find that driveway. we got to go find that driveway. And we drove around a little bit looking, but we couldn't find it. <laughs> we missed those beautiful wow. buttons by a couple of weeks. That's so upsetting. It's I so upsetting. <laughs> they were beautiful. But I did get some of the plain white pearls. And so I do use that on some of the blouses. They just bring a lot of beauty to the garment. Where did you get your eye for quality, your appreciation for quality? That's a great question. And it happened when I was like about 12 or 13, because we were really poor. I finally got a sewing machine out of my dad. Boy, oh boy, I was relentless the way I just begged and hopped up and down and hollered for a sewing machine. And I sustained quite a few slaps across the face to shut me up, but nothing was going to shut me up. 
I knew I needed a sewing machine because I wanted to make clothes for my sisters. And um, finally, he got up one morning and he said we could go down to Singer's. And I just almost fell over. So we went down to Singer's and I went in there and I was just looking around like, oh my God, I'm in Singer's. I got sewing machines everywhere. I'll have any of these. I'll take <laughs> any of these. So dad bought me one. He paid $200 for it, which was a lot of money. They were expensive back then. So I started sewing at the kitchen table, and the dad went out to get drunk. And by the time he came home, I had so many things that I'd made, like 12 pot holders. I had already collected the fabric for a quarter a yard with my vegetable money. I would go door to door selling vegetables in the neighborhood. And so I would, I would spend it on fabric because I knew eventually he would get tired of slapping me across the face and he'd give me a sewing machine. <laughs> so I had all these things made, and a couple of aprons, some crop tops, some little skirts for my sisters. And Dad came in, I remember it so vividly, he picked up a pot holder and he said, so this is what $200 got me. And then he sort of put it down and then I saw how we picked up the apron, how he grinned. So I knew he was thrilled. <laughs> so that's how I started, and I just took off. I never took a class. I taught myself everything. I'm not the best seamstress or tailor, but I can sew a real nice stitch. And I was just off to the races at that point. And my sisters wore everything to school, got laughed at. They didn't care. It was very Dolly Parton, coat of many colors. So that's how I got started. If you're comfortable, would you want to tell me a little bit more about growing up? Yeah. And that's a lot of what's in your book. Well, um, the book it was written out of the corner of my eye. I'd never intended to write a book. The book started out as paintings. I did some paintings about my childhood because at that point I was starting to get kind of overwhelmed. Maybe it was post-traumatic stress syndrome or whatever. But So I had a show in a gallery had the paintings on a wall, about 25 paintings. Some of them were perfect. I looked at them carefully. I said, yeah, that tells that story very well. But like, you know, several of them weren't exactly what I wanted. So I thought, I'm gonna write a paragraph. So I had these little short paragraphs that I'd written about 15 of the paintings. So then the show opened, it was a total success. It was bizarre and crazy and we got written up in the New Yorker, things to do. It was a great time. A couple of days later, there was a little note that uh, the gallery owner, Margaret, brought over, and it said, well, I saw your show, bought a painting, and um, my friend thinks that you could have a book with these stories. She said, I want to show these to my um, editor. So I thought, well, okay, what the heck? And the editor called me right away and said, I'm going to get you a book deal here. And I laughed. I said, well, uh, okay. And she called me a week later, and she said, well, I showed them to everybody, and they lo love it, but it's not literary enough. And I'm like, well, of course it's not literary enough. It's just memories of crazy stuff. I said, thank you so much, though, for trying. And then she said, well, I'm not done. I'm going to try again next week. The big, important guy will be here. And I said, okay, well, let's just see it through. And I'm giggling the whole time. 
And she called me right away and said, same, same thing from him. He just doesn't get it. He uh, has no idea what's going on. So what I want to do is I'm going to quit my job and become your agent. I said, game over. I bet this is far enough. I, I want to take you out and buy you a coffee or buy you a drink or something. I'm so appreciate you've gone above and beyond the call of duty, but you ain't quitting your job because of me. I can't, I won't be able to sleep at night. She said, well, look, I'm quitting anyway. And I said, no, you're not. You're just going, you're just talking crazy. <laughs> and she said, seriously, I'm quitting anyway. And I said, well, I, I'm sorry, but I don't believe you. And she said, okay, I'll tell you what happened. She said, I had this book. They said the same thing about it. They wouldn't publish it. And it went on to be sold to another publishing company and made millions of dollars. And it went to a movie that made millions of dollars. And she said, I'm getting the hell out of here anyway because I just can't take it. I tried to get that. I tried to believe that. And it kind of made sense to me. She said, so that's the real truth. And I just thought, wow, life is crazy. This is New York. Amazing things happen. I said, okay, I think I can get it. I, I think I can believe you because it was nuts. Who would, who would quit their job like that? And so two weeks later, she had a, a book deal for me at HarperCollins. Do you, do you love New York or what? <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's, people somehow know deep in their soul that anything's possible here. You just put your shoulder to the wheel. You just follow your dream. You don't take no for an answer. You just keep going, and then all of a sudden you lift it up. It's magic. I don't have any other word for it. And so the book came out. It uh, was the bestseller for three weeks, and 9-11 came, got knocked off the table, as did many other uh, books around that time. Did go to paperback, recently went to ebook, and um, I'm, I'm writing again. Th this was just something I had to do. Could you share <laughs> one or two of the stories that yeah. are in the book? Maybe I'll read a couple. Yeah. And the book, for the record, is called Even Dogs Go Home to Die. Yeah. Okay. Sad smile. I watched Dad's teeth turn green and slowly fall out. Uppers first. He started complaining about a fishbone got stuck up in there, in his gum. He pushed on the tooth with his finger. See that thing wobble? He drank a 12-pack, tied one end of a string around the bathroom doorknob and the other end around his left central incisor and just jerked her out. The other front tooth fell out about a month later, and when he smiled, it broke my heart. Mom's just started going crazy every which way in her mouth, getting long and migratory. Her breath could stop a charging buffalo and the infections. Sometimes she could hardly get out of bed. He cursed her good, but he, he drove her over there finally. The dentist pulled so many of her teeth that time. She did get herself some new uppers with her cleaning money. She was so proud of her new teeth, she tried to smile a lot, but it didn't look like a smile. More like she was just curling her upper lip back. I think mom has three teeth left now. She goes after them diligently with implements like the dentist instructed. They anchor the dentures, keep the clicking to a minimum. Ralphie talks a lot about how we never had toothbrushes or toothpaste when we were little. His teeth aren't doing too well, snapping off now, front uppers, molars rottening. Use a rag, Dad would growl. 
if we ask for a toothbrush. But I do remember once we got a great big old tube of Crest. We all immediately memorized the words in the box and then hopped around the house repeating, Crest has been shown to be an effective decay preventive dentifrice that can be of significant value when used in conscientiously applied programs of oral hygiene and regular professional care. This is causing too much trouble, Mom says as she grabs the toothpaste. She hides it somewhere and later yells at Dad, Why did you have to bring the damn toothpaste, St. John? The brats had squeezed it everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Just totally insane. (laughs) Now, where was your mom from? She was a Hungarian beauty queen. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, right off the boat. (laughs) And Dad met her after the war in in, uh, Salzburg, Austria, and he fell in love with my mom because she was so beautiful. The Hungarian women are so beautiful and elegant. But my mom, uh, he didn't know something was wrong with mom because of the language barrier. He just thought she was eccentric. And you know, they fell in love, got married over there. Mom, I think, just wanted out because she had survived the war. She was like 12 years old when things got crazy. And she didn't even know if her own family was alive until I was about 12 years old. The Red Cross came to our door and said that they'd located my mom's family and her, only one of her sisters had died. The other three were alive. She was so happy. And they were in Hungary still? Um, they were in, still in Hungary. Yeah. But at that point, they might have been in a displaced persons camp in Germany. Because after we won the war, there were a lot of refugees. And the whole thing is ridiculous because Dad was a brilliant scientist, but he had that Southern Illinois hillbilly bullshit that he just couldn't get rid of. I know the problem. I have it myself, but I can tamp it down by keeping busy. So this is what I would do. I I just started writing down my memories. There's one that's pretty funny. Oh, here we go. Let's try this. She didn't even know what PTA stood for. Dad didn't give a shit about the PTA. He didn't go to one meeting ever, but Mom did. Mom would doll up, put on her best dress, high heels, and we'd all walk down to brush school. We'd sit in the lunchroom and suffer through the boring principal and other speakers, and finally, open house. Mom really liked that part. We'd follow her from room to room as she pranced along like a beauty queen, flirting and talking loud, drawing attention to herself. She'd stand at the refreshment table and eat the treats that other kids' moms had brought. She had no interest in what the teachers had to say. Mom didn't ask any questions or really look around much at our books or work pages posted on the wall. Mom didn't really give a shit about how school was going for us. Mom would interrupt the teacher mid-sentence. Mom would blurt out, Did you try the donuts? That's the best donuts I had ever had in my life. The teacher would stand there looking at my mom, her red lips covered with sugar. (laughs) I think I can tell you tapeworm without finding it in the book. Well, my aunt always told me I was so skinny because I had a tapeworm. And I always thought, well, I'm probably so skinny because we never get any food. But 
then she told me the remedy to get rid of a tapeworm. She said, now, what you got to do is you got to uh, get a piece of raw meat, put that up in front of your mouth, you open wide, and when he comes up after that meat, you get him and you pull him out. And I went, oh, my God. I said, won't I choke? And she said, no, but you got to get him quick before he gets the meat and goes back down. <laughs> Did you ever try it? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think I would want to know. I would just be like, that tapeworm can stay right well, down Well, it was there. absolutely ridiculous. It was difficult to be a little child looking at these crazy people and knowing already that you know more than them and that you just uh, don't want to be there. Where did your siblings end up? Well, my brother is in southern Illinois, and my two sisters are in uh, Arizona, and there's the biggest regret is that we were like hyenas. We, we couldn't form real good bonds with each other. Sometimes, you know, I have a friend whose family was horrible, but they're close. The kids bonded together. We kind of were on our own, just fighting to keep our own head above water. That's the terrible thing about a really bad dysfunctional family is, well, what the kids go through, but they're robbed of camaraderie and family and closeness. So I want to take some time to talk about the business specifically. Um, maybe we could chat about what some of the biggest challenges have been in owning a small business in New York. The biggest challenge right now is the shift in demographics of the customers. We have a lot of millennials in the neighborhood who have no idea what's going on in here because they're settled for a uniform which consists of a t-shirt and a pair of, you know, baggy pants, sweatpants or something. And I had a gal in last week. She was getting a dress for a dinner for her daughter who was getting married. So they show up at the restaurant, they're waiting for their daughter and the son-in-law. The daughter walks in, the, the, gal's, the lady's husband has a nice suit on, her daughter has a real pretty dress for the occasion. The guy walks in in a T-shirt. The meals are $150. He walks in in a T-shirt, what the hell, what's going on? I don't know what it is going on. But we have a lot of our customers from the old days. Some still live in the neighborhood. We work on a lot of Broadway shows. We work... Um, Doing costuming? Costuming. And we work on movies. We just did a lot of clothes for West Side Story. Spielberg's bringing it back to the big screen. They might even be done filming now. They use a lot of our pants, our high-waisted, instant Hollywood matinee idol Cary Grant trouser. So, and they used a lot of our gabardine shirts, some jackets. So what was the latest thing we worked on on Broadway? You know what? There's a few television shows that we're working on. One is called The Plot Against America. So that's set in 1941. Have you worked on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Yes, we have some clothes in that. So that's always really fun. I, I love to work with the costumers, but I also like regular people to pop in. How do in. people find out about you? Well, people found out about us by word of mouth mostly because we don't do anything you're supposed to do as a business. <laughs> we just don't. <laughs> we never had a business plan. I just wanted to make the clothes, present the clothes, and have people, you know, come in and buy the clothes. The whole new way of doing business with 
branding and having someone be a uh, influencer. It almost sounds criminal, an influencer. Like, it's very shady or something. I, I think it's, a, it's kind of a swindle. We don't have anything like that going on. We are on Instagram. And uh, What's your Instagram handle? Is it DL Cerny? Yeah. Yeah, so there's no business model. I, I When I start a new collection, I just look for fabric that I like, make something I might like, make sure it would flatter people, make sure it's well done, and put it in the shop. So, But it's definitely been a challenge some months, February and August. Slow, and you think, well, that's it. No one's coming in. But you just keep going, and things always turn around. We experienced that on 7th Street, too. So that is retail. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of online purchasing. So that's all we are. We're just a little tiny shop. it's, It's who we are. And we've been in business. I counted up all the years, if I count... The 28 years on 7th Street, the eight years in Tribeca, that's 36 years, three here. Well, that's almost 40 years, wow. And it went so fast, and it was so much fun. I met so many wonderful people. Many are my friends. That's how I met my friends, is in the shop. So so I don't have a magic formula. Just (laughs) doing what we do. And um, I can't see us being ever growing, being a big mega company, because stuff's basically, some things are one of a kind, especially when you get into the vintage wool. Mm-hmm. You, you're just going to have enough for a few pieces, maybe a suit. Feel the weight of this beautiful wow. stuff. Wow. I mean, that's for real. Yeah. Wear forever. That's incredible. It's a British wool from, like, 1940s. And one thing I really realize I love about fashion is more or less the history of fashion. Uh-huh. Everything you, you learn about style, like Dior dropped the hemline right after the war ended because he was sick of just scrimping on fabric. Everything was rationed. Gosh, I love his stuff. What a great designer. It's all about flattering fit. Do you have uh, other designers that you look to for inspiration? Um, no. <laughs> I look to old movies. Mm-hmm. I look to old catalogs, which I collect. Sears and Roebuck from the fifties. Uh, you could get everything in there. Montgomery Ward. You get houses in there. You get houses in there. <laughs> yeah, and they they just deliver it. I know. And it would be better than anything built today. I know. Because the quality was expected. Yeah. I think that's a sin. We've we've been robbed of quality, and people let it happen. That being said, where do you see the future of your business? Do you see? Do you do you think you'll be able to stay here? Yeah, I think I can stay here as long as I want. I have a good relationship with the landlord, and um, I, I think I will. Uh, I'll be here definitely for for a while longer. Mm-hmm. I have no intentions of uh, going back upstate mm-hmm. and. Uh, getting into the farming again on a 100% basis. Because that whole thing about full-time hermit, tough job. I'm a part-time hermit now. It's the way to go. (laughs) (laughs) It really works. What tips would you give to someone who came in here and said, I want to open a small business in New York? What would you say? I wouldn't tell them, don't do it. I would never tell anyone that it's too hard. But I would tell them, if they're not 100% committed, 
and willing to work 18 hours a day, they're going to be in trouble, especially with the rents. You, you know, in the 80s, so many empty storefronts because the city was just coming out of a depression. They were bankrupt. And you could get a good landlord. The neighborhood, a lot of Ukrainian people owned the businesses. They would rather have someone in there paying a reasonable rent than have it empty waiting to get $5 million a square foot or something stupid. So it's tough today, but it's not impossible. And uh, I tell them, do not do anything that someone else is already doing. Don't think you're going to open a T-shirt business because you're just not going to make it. And you're going to have to have something special that flatters people because people do see a difference. I did meet a wonderful young man. He came in here. He said, wow, I want to look like Clark Gable. And I said, now, wait a minute. How do you know who Clark Gable is? You're only 20 years old. And he said, I know, but I always watched old movies with my mom when I was a kid. That was such a delight. He's a sweetheart. A lot of these people actually become my friends because um, I get a lot of people who just pop in, sit down, and we just have a chat, and I'll make some coffee. <laughs> so we'll have a cookie. So I made him some pants, and he just looked fantastic. But see, without his mom's influence, he wouldn't have known. And boy, oh boy, everywhere he goes, he gets compliments, sends people over. Thanks so much for listening. This has been a podcast by Manhattan Sideways. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to join us next week when I'll be interviewing Tiziana Agnello of Love Thy Beast. See you next time.